0: This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW Sydney. For
1: more information, go to www.kaldorcentre.unsw.edu.au.
0: Welcome everyone, or welcome back to the Caldor Centre Conference. I'm Lauren Martin and I'll be your chair for this session, A Better Conversation, Changing the Public Discourse about Refugees. Considering the topics, it's especially fitting to begin by honouring the traditional owners of country in Australia and their continuing connection to land, water and community. I'd like to acknowledge the custodians of the Gadigal lands where I am today. I pay my respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who are with us online today. We have an amazing panel for you. Brief intros can only hint at all they've done, but here goes. Bharat Ali Batur is a photographer and filmmaker who's been published in Newsweek, The Wall Street Journal, The Guardian, Stern, India Today, and more. I'm proud to have published his work in the Global Mail, and for those photos, he won Australia's prestigious Walkley Award. If you've seen his award-winning film, Batur, A Refugee's Journey, Then you've also seen his brave project for the Washington Post, The Dancing Boys of Afghanistan. The film itself was a finalist for another Walkley and it is so moving and thought provoking. If you haven't seen it, please seek it out. Next, communication strategist Tom Hashimi. Tom is all about better connecting policy experts and the public. His experience ranges from NATO and the OECD to KPMG and the global PR firm Edelman. He is now the managing partner at Cast From Clay. It's an agency founded by people who were troubled about the failure of experts to engage the public on Brexit and the retreat of meaningful, well-informed perspectives. What a great response to that referendum result. Finally, best-selling author Amanda Ripley is an investigative journalist and host of the Slate podcast, How To. When she asked her fellow journalists, what if we covered controversial issues differently based on how humans actually behave when they are polarized and suspicious? Her question became a touchstone for the solutions journalism movement. Amanda also co-founded Good Conflict a company that creates workshops and content to help people get smarter about how they fight. And her latest book is High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out. And again, I really can't recommend it highly enough. Thank you all for being here. The plan is for about 40 minutes of moderated discussion with the speakers, followed by 15 minutes of audience Q&A. But please feel free to post questions through the Q&A Chat, uh, the Q&A function at any time, and we'll try and integrate them as we go. Now, really goes without saying that in 2022, we are increasingly polarized internationally, in the domestic politics of many of our countries and even in our homes. Our debates are warped by people out for political gain and by algorithms out for profit. The power of grievance is on show everywhere. In Australia, the Europe, uh, Europe, the US, and really elsewhere, we've seen leaders exploit that general grievance and bring it to bear on refugees and people seeking asylum. And at the same time, the voices of refugees themselves are being heard more than ever. It's complicated. So let's start by digging deeper into the current state of play and where we are today. Patoor, let's start with you. Would Going back to the theme of the conference, would you say that we are at a turning point for the narrative about refugees? And if so, w- which way are we heading and who's driving it? Uh,
2: thank you very much, uh, Lauren. Uh, before I start, I would like to acknowledge uh, by the... I would like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land that I'm dialing from, uh, which is the land of the Bunurong people of the Kulin nations, and I pay my respect to their elders past and present. And I acknowledge that this land has never been ceded. Uh, I think, yes. uh, And we have clearly witnessed in the last election that people rejected the politics of fear uh, and division. And uh, in the last three terms of the liberal government, they used every tactic to punish people uh, seeking asylum and refugees. Uh, they were punished in every way possible, uh, like mentally, uh, financially, socially, and even physically uh, by incarcerating them in, uh, illegally in, and indefinitely. Uh, so they were demonized and were taken on to the point that we all witnessed several cases of self-harm. And we also saw that public pressure were enormous and great in support of those detained in offshore detentions, in hotel detentions, how amazing the the support uh, for the Home to Billow campaign was. Uh, You you might remember how the former Prime Minister, Scott Morrison used the fear tactic to the last minute of the election campaign by leaking the news about the bird interception, uh, but they miserably failed, uh, and the Australian public said a big no to this approach. Uh, Last year, in August, when uh, uh, the president of Afghanistan symbolically escaped from Afghanistan, we received an overwhelming uh, support from the wider Australian public, uh, like faith groups, uh, people, politicians, artists, human rights activists, professionals, uh, ordinary public and students. Like they have been amazing in throwing their support to the diaspora community from Afghanistan and to put pressure on the government to take action for Afghanistan, to do something more. And uh, at the Action for Afghanistan campaign, the key refugee sector organisations supported enormously uh, and without this support, the campaign could not be so powerful that we we have been involved and very active for over a year. Uh, other refugee campaigns, which were uh, driven by values-based messaging where refugees and people seeking asylum have been the center voices. Uh, they have uh, contributed greatly to, the, to change the narr- to change the negative narrative about refugees. Uh, the recent polling uh, polling support of permanent protection uh, is another example uh, and clearly shows that it is a turning point and we are heading towards the right uh, towards the right direction of a fair and more compassionate society but i should say that this is just the beginning and uh, more work are needed to be done uh, the previous government uh, has done a great uh, like great damage to, uh, and it will need a lot of work and time to undo it, uh, to repair it. In in this process, the refugee voices need to be at the forefront, they need to be heard, and they need to guide where the movement should go, how they should be treated, how the narrative should be. And I think refugees and people seeking asylum are slowly getting in control of the driving wheel uh, uh, with the help of organizations, individuals and supporters who truly believe that narrative about refugees should be told and led by refugees and people seeking asylum. Uh, I myself, uh, I'm a coordinator uh, of a program at the Asylum Seeker Resource Center that provides, uh, like we conduct uh, training uh, for people seeking asylum and refugees. In it provides the opportunity for people with lived experience of seeking asylum to get trained, to become the leaders of the community. Uh, I think this is a big and in, in, in impactful uh, investment. So hopefully we will have more refugee leaders in coming years who will be the true leaders of refugee movements and uh, will change the refugee narrative for good. And I'm sure like other organizations, more people are involved in uh, upskilling, empowering people uh, and investing more into refugee movements, like to, to, to refugees, to 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 get the skills to be in, in power of changing the narrative. And this is the turning point.
0: That's so great. Thank you. It's amazing to start on a somewhat positive note. Um, Amanda, if I could turn to you next, because I think in terms of shaping uh, the narrative about refugees, uh, we're talking often about journalists. Journalists and the media shape so much of our thinking. And we know that journalists take facts as their currency. But I was struck by your observation uh, in one of your recent pieces that um, that's just not how humans work and that facts might not be the most sensible starting point for sharing the news. Can you talk about that, uh, about your evolution in thinking as a journalist and how it might apply to news about refugee issues?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think even hearing you say that right now makes me sad, and it's true, uh, but I have a lingering love affair with facts. And uh, like a lot of journalists believe if I can just pluck the right facts out and shine them up and display them, you will, you will believe. Um, and especially in times of of conflict, or especially in times of intractable or high conflict that doesn't work and often has um unintended uh counterproductive effects humans there's a great book by jonathan Haidt um where he talks about called the righteous mind which i highly recommend and he talks about how humans are just wired to be driven by intuition and emotion and then we use reason to justify um those feelings right so My dream is to one day be able to read and consume journalism that is based on how humans actually process information, um, because I feel like we're, we need to evolve um, for, for what psychology has taught us about how people actually process the world around them, especially when they are anxious, especially when they are afraid. So when we talk about refugees in particular, we know that whenever people feel um, anxious, uncertain, afraid, uh, they, will f- they will tend to be very vulnerable to conflict entrepreneurs who give them an explanation for their pain that blames someone else, right? And that is, there is something reassuring in that clarity for, for all humans. And often, unfortunately, it is refugees who become the narrative of blame. So how do we immunize people against that manipulation? Um, And I think part of where we have to begin, and I don't, I definitely do not have the answers, but where I've tried to begin is to start from the reality that people are vulnerable and afraid and anxious or my readers or my viewers are, right? Whether they should be or not, <laughs> that is what it is. And so what then, um, how do we take what we know about human behavior and try to be useful and tell stories that people that will open people up, revive curiosity in a time of false simplicity? Um, and I can talk more about those specific ways to do that, but I think that's kind of the big, aspiration right is is to um, help people resist conflict entrepreneurs and narratives of blame uh, that are very magnetic in times of change
0: yeah i think you're being very modest here because you have um talked about ways that we can that and you've made a very compelling case that one of the few things that helps to create the space for understanding when people are do whether they're anxious or fearful they're dug into opposing sides and one of the things that works to to get progress there is complicating the narrative and so I'd really appreciate it if you could explain to everyone what that means and how and why it works.
1: Well, so there's been some really cool research by Peter Coleman and his colleagues at Columbia University where they study how people um, interact when they're in conflict. And one of the most intriguing and hopeful things they discovered is that um, you can prime people for complexity and curiosity, you can If you expose them to a news story about some controversy and it is you know two sides us versus them you know the usual traditional news story then they're more likely to have um, unhelpful unhealthy conflict um, in the in the difficult conversations lab which they've set up for these studies if however you uh, have them read a news story of the same length Which is about the same thing, but it acknowledges the actual complexity over an issue that, in fact, there are not two camps over Brexit or the Colombian peace treaty or abortion or any number of controversial issues. In fact, that many people feel internal conflict about these things, that there are more like six or seven different groups, if we had to create groups. And then people are much more likely to have what we might call good conflict conversations where they still disagree. That's not the problem, right? But they ask each other questions. There are flashes of understanding, even humor, and then they're back to frustrated and angry. And it's sort of a there's a sense of movement, which is where, where conflict is really transformative and useful and exciting. Uh, so that's what you're trying to get. And so, you know, this idea of complicating the narratives means, well, First of all, we have to know what the narrative is right for a given audience or population. What is the narrative and where do where does our reporting show that that narrative is accurate or inaccurate, you know, where's the gap and then it's about, you know, one of the things that I find really useful is to um, do stories about different sources than we would normally use. So that might be when we train journalists, we talk about um the changed source somebody who has changed her his or her mind right about something Uh, or the unsure source like somebody who's just like you know what this is really complicated and some days i feel this way and the next day i feel this other way Um, or the unexpected source just a quick example i recently did a story for political magazine about a group of refugees uh about 30 female uh, Afghan refugees who were trained up as special operators to work alongside um, army rangers and green berets in Afghanistan and are now scattered across the United States trying to reinvent their lives. So what's useful about this story is that it takes everyone who's reading it pretty much by surprise <laughs> because these women are, um, have more combat experience than almost any living American uh, soldier. And they're Afghan women, you know, and they're Muslim and they are um, dressed very conservatively, typically, and they had families who allowed them and encouraged them to do this very dangerous thing, which is to go along on midnight raids with US forces throughout Afghanistan. And now they are um, heartbroken and starting uh, often alone in very random places (laughs) in the United States. Um, So it's a way to interrupt people's assumptions, right? About refugees or any given story by shining a spotlight on someone they don't know or expect or understand, but it, it makes you curious.
0: That's so interesting. And that was another great story that you've written recently. And it did exactly that for me, Tom. I want to turn to you now because um sort of conventional wisdom about pr and advocacy strategies is that you've got to be simple the slogan the motto and using complication would seem to go against all that assumed wisdom is that how you see it and and where do you see nuance or complicating the narrative or complicating something being useful in your advice
3: first off thank you for having me it's a pleasure to be here um, Amanda, there was a lot in what you said that chimed. So I got into this kind of world about six years ago, and well, September 2016 was when we set up the company in the wake of the the EU vote. Um, the um, Righteous Mind was quite formative in shaping how we think about it. And then George Lakoff's Don't Think of an Elephant, which I was reminded of as you were speaking. There's a there's a quote in that book. He says something like, "When the facts don't fit the frames, the frames are kept and the facts are ignored." In other words, facts don't change the way people think. And if we constantly communicate with fact-based communication, we're not going to change the way they think. Quite the opposite. They will then use those facts to support their existing frame, which presumably is the one that we're trying to change. And I guess this feeds into this idea of complicating narrative, which I, I like, conce- like conceptually. I enjoyed that, that explanation. It worked for me. I think we think about this in terms of breadcrumbs, which I guess is another way of exploring it maybe from a similar but different way in the sense that if we're trying to get someone engaged in a specific topic that they may not already be engaged in, it's quite hard to give them something meaty. So we do a lot of work with policy organisations who publish big reports, um, 50-plus page reports. Trying to get someone to engage with a 50-page report from the outset when they have no kind of prior engagement with this topic isn't exactly the best way of approaching um, that from a communications point of view. So we try and, you know, breadcrumb, right, ladder up stages of engagement, get them to engage with something small, uh, bite-sized piece of content that's framed well, so to to the values point, to Jonathan height point, how do we tap into their existing framing of the the subject, tap into why their values would support this frame and this, this narrative and then get them to engage to a deeper and deeper level. Hopefully, I mean, like, like to, the, to the point where you could have that, that piece Amanda that you were talking about where you have competing points of view and you're getting people to debate it and actually take this on in a more, um, more thorough fashion.
0: Thanks, and um, as somebody who's often asked to um, engage people in long, long reports, I've read a lot of your work and seen your content online with great interest. But Tor, I want to turn to you because your film is such a great example of complicating the narrative. It is deeply human with all the complications that that brings about you, about your fellow asylum seekers, the smugglers, the advantages you might have had, the different quote unquote endings of each person's story. and. Um, I wonder, were you tempted to make it a simpler one-man overcoming adversity story, that sort of traditional Hollywood formula for attracting the biggest audience?
2: Yeah, that's a good question, uh, Lauren. Uh, First of all, uh, the, the film production, like that was my first film experience and it was a very lengthy process that at some points I like kind of uh, got tired (laughs) so it it took me a very long time to to complete it but I I think my aim uh, like was to show the real picture of uh, migration but also based on the like as I mentioned the values-based messaging not only the factual uh, correctness or like what is happening but also to communicate human to human like emotions, connections, and stories, uh, like you see the characters in my film, like those who are telling these stories, for instance, uh, like there are people in my film like who have been one family, have been through four uh, terrorist attacks, lost one member, they got injured several times, like and like. Everyone can connect to that uh, or like people who are separated from their loved ones, like especially children, they are hoping that I wish I can meet or uh, hear the voices of my kids for the last time, like in the middle of the Indian Ocean. So these are like some like everyone can connect to that. So, so that is like we need to change like they are human, like how they have been portrayed Wrongly in this discussion uh, to the wider public, uh, I think that was important because when I came to uh, uh, Australia, I was resettled in t- 2013. I was surprised, like how negative the narration or narrative about people seeking asylum or refugees were. Like, uh, as soon as I came, I like. Uh, I, I was being invited to come and give talks, and like I, I met people who were like had very negative thoughts about you know, like refugees and uh, people seeking asylum and all. I would watch news, and it was all about like the political political campaigns. Like it was just before that election that Labour lost, it was all about refugees, born turned turnbacks. Like it was the like looked like refugees were the villains of the movie like, they are here to smash Australia. Like, that was the the thing. And I, like, it through this film, my uh, whole intention was to give that human element to that, like, who are they, what they are going through, what are some of the challenges they are facing, and uh, all those stories, like, from, like, I didn't want to focus it all on myself, but, like, to bring stories that people can connect to this and, like, So people can get more educated and get more awareness about uh, refugees and those who risk their lives. Why do they come here? So because we like at that time, we were hearing a lot like economic, economical migrants and illegal and those sort of stuff. And yeah, I tried to kind of tackle all those uh, issues in like in a in, in. that way to through the stories of people uh, to, to portray. Yeah, it was difficult. But I got I'm,
0: it there. I'm curious when you first arrived, and there was such a negative feeling and you went and spoke to those groups, could you actually see a change in the room when when you were doing that just by having that personal connection?
2: Uh, I think Yes. Uh, Even, like, when I I speak, like, I spoke at uh, one particular event at uh, an RSL club uh, in, I think it was around Frankston area. At that time, I was just very new. I didn't know the areas. I was invited to to speak to this group of retired people, uh, like, who were retired. And uh, uh, so I spoke to them and, like, Shared my story and uh, very like plainly, like my own experience, personal experience. Uh, and uh, at the end, a lot of people they came uh, like all like from the audience to meet and greet and like say they, like how they felt. In particular, one uh, uh, woman, an old woman, she came and said like, "I was so anti-refugees. Like I didn't want you people to come to Australia." but after listening to your story, I've changed my mind because what I was hearing through the media or like politicians, like they were not correct. You're different. So that was my like, oh great like this is really impacting people, like personal stories. I never thought, uh, I never shared my personal stories in public before. So they were like just the beginning and I was, wow, this is powerful. Wow, that's
0: great. That's great and it, um... It's such a wonderful story when somebody admits that they've really changed their view, not just that they enjoyed your chat. And um, and that's a very hard thing to do. So so Tom, I really want to turn to you because I'm trying to figure out how we reach beyond supporters here. And in your line of work, you're often trying to influence or shift the public conversation and. And I'm afraid, do we have to talk about social media platforms? I think we do. Two Australian writers, uh, Waleed Ali and Scott Stevens, recently described social media's algorithmic logic as the virality of evil. And um, so often I think that's what we experience when we're on there. And yet we need to use it as a tool and can you tell me how social media plays into your strategic advice
3: thought you were going to ask me what's happening with twitter what's elon doing uh, which well I'm if you know
0: please
2: before. tell <laughs> us that too
3: um so i guess with every channel the, the 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 starting point is what's your audience who are you trying to reach and where do you reach that audience and more often than not social media is one way through which you get to them just because of its um uh its size and and like everyone's on well not everyone the large majority of, of populations are on social media in some way sense or form um i think one of the common mistakes we see clients make is assuming that because they're on a specific platform and twitter is often the guilty platform when we talk about social because they're on it other people are on it too and twitter just as 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 the example is is a very elite network there are relatively few people on it they tend to be quite uh, in in quite specific kind of um bubbles um whereas something like facebook has a much wider public appeal so when you're trying to do a more mass market campaign you're much more likely to go to something like facebook than to than to twitter or indeed linkedin or, or the other more niche networks um but yeah, I guess without as as with all comms, it comes down to who you're trying to reach and what you're trying to get them to do. Um, so for example, we're running a campaign at the moment that's targeting five very specific politicians. There is no need to do anything on social media to do that. We've hired billboards on vans and we've parked them outside their parliamentary offices so that they really see the see the message loud and clear. So I think it's it's being strategic about what you do and how you do it.
1: Can I just ask, like Tom, what is the message? Like, I'm dying to know. (laughs) Sorry, Lauren. Uh,
3: This project is around how do we reframe obesity in um, among UK parliamentarians? So we've had in the UK and many other um, countries had progressively worse uh, levels of obesity successive, I mean, in the UK, we've had 700 policies to try and deal with this in the last 30 to 40 years, none of which have had any impact. And the problem is largely that we think about it on an individual basis, when actually it's a much more structural problem. It's much more around the environments within which people live, and the stimulus that they have. So as someone that used to work for corporate and consumer communications, um, and large firms that spend a lot of money marketing to people, it's really effective. And if you put people in an environment where they're on their, you know, children on their phones, on Facebook, getting battered by ads left, right and center about buying McDonald's or whatever it is, um, they are much more likely to to, um, to end up over consuming in the UK kids that are obese by 12, 80% of them never get out of that they're obese for the rest of their lives. So it's a massive structural problem. So the, the, the ads are about trying to change these specific, or it's a pilot campaign, how can we change these specific parliamentarians and how they think about obesity, essentially? Can we get them to look at it as a structural problem? And I guess what's relevant to this conversation, going back to the framing kind of piece, is how can we frame it so that it aligns with their political beliefs? These are not traditional, these politicians aren't necessarily the, the typical people that you'd go to to support something like this. So, we're testing whether we can bring them on board despite the fact that they're perhaps not the normal allies.
0: And what do they say?
3: Uh, it's TBD. We'll see. The evaluation starts in two weeks. Okay, gotcha.
0: Gotcha. And maybe I would invite the audience to start submitting your questions because there's just so many ways we could go with all of this. I want to talk to you, Tom, about how you engage Facebook without a lot of money when it's such a pay to play kind of network at the moment. And maybe Amanda, you can take that in or take this in a different direction because I really want to quote you directly. You've written in High Conflict that the challenge of our time is to mobilize great masses of people to make change without dehumanizing one another so how do we do that
1: one of the things that i find really exciting right now is to think about um, how we can create communities that have guardrails in place so that we keep conflict healthy right and i think social media is a great example of this like I am happy to complain about social media, I could do it all day long, but I think I've also noticed that there are certain subcommunities within different social media channels that are delightful, you know, where people treat each other like humans, where they can disagree um, and still, you know, be curious about each other, right, um, and still show each other some common decency. Where they know what they don't know right where they're wondering um, what what else is out there and there's a spirit of awe and curiosity and joy even i've seen that right, I think we all have. Um, But here's the important thing those things are designed that way and they're the exception you, you can design a room a gathering a group of people, a company to bring out those things right in humans and you can design an algorithm to do the opposite. Um, So I'm actually very confident that humans can do this. We've done it many, many times. Um, And I actually see that there's such pent-up demand for that, that I'm hopeful there will be a way to, if not make it profitable, then at least make it possible. Um, You know, I don't, I don't I don't buy the argument that there's no way to do this without just um, monopolizing people's eyeballs in the most base and um, destructive ways. I think that's kind of a cop out. Um, So what I do see are just a ton of people who are yearning for connection and community um, and not getting it through a lot of the sort of traditional social media and and news media outlets. Um, So I'm really not answering your question, you may have noticed, but I am trying to be hopeful.
0: Yeah, I think that that you're right about that human yearning, but we're actually up against um, much more powerful forces in some ways than we've ever had to cope as humans, cope with before as humans.
1: Yeah, no, I think, one of the things we're up against is just the inundation of messaging right like i think people are aware of every terrible thing that's happened and could happen in a way that they weren't before and i do not think that is how humans have evolved to function Um, and particularly in a pluralistic diverse community it's very hard to be bombarded with threats all the time So something that has to change, I think, and this is my bias, is the way we cover the news and how we decide um, what is news. And um, there are, in, in my experience, three things that are missing from a lot of traditional, even very rigorous news reporting. And those three things are hope, agency and dignity. So those are things that we know now that humans need to thrive in the modern world. And people want those things. They want hope, agency, and dignity, and not false hope, right? But hope that is, you know, rooted in actual experience, and they're not getting it, right? So that's those is an example of um, things that would help us, I think, navigate a world in which we are very interdependent, and we need each other. I mean, we just cannot solve big problems if we keep demonizing each other in this way.
0: Yeah, I think it's especially challenging for young people who who grow up with so much more awareness than experience and and how they navigate that and i think with all the the hopefulness that you're all bringing to this i want to ask you each in different ways how we can identify or or even create moments when change can happen and and how we can be ready for that so Maybe Tom, um, in your particular sort of approach, um, where do you see new kinds of engagement and, and how in particular can think tanks or researchers or civil society take a more productive role in, in creating the conversation where that can happen and, and what, what in your view do we need to do differently?
3: Good question. So I think in terms of moments when change can happen, they tend to be things that you don't have any influence over there tends to be some kind of exogenous shock that happens and an opportunity presents itself. And I think a lot of the time it's about being prepared for that opportunity to present itself. Um, I think probably a component part of that is thinking long term. So often in the communications world, clients turn up and they say, can you change this narrative in three months? And the answer is like, no, that just doesn't work like that. You need to think a lot more long term if you want to actually affect real social change in terms of how people perceive and conceptualize an issue you need to think about how you're framing the debate and um that starts with understanding I, Amanda I think it was you but that's it might have been you but um understand starts with understanding your audience and like knowing how they relate to the topic at hand before you start talking to them so like how do they think about this and therefore how how can I engage them through that lens so that it's going to instinctively feel right to them when I do and they're not just going to immediately reject whatever it is that I'm saying. And I guess the third bit is, I guess, more of a political point, which is recognize that we don't exist in a bubble. So often when you have policy-specific areas of expertise, those policy experts tend to only look at the world through that singular policy lens. If we want to affect political change, we need to recognize that political choices are difficult and they often you often have competing um, requests for the same resources. So how, how do you convince whoever it is, the decision maker is, that your policy request is, is more important or is worthy of that resource versus the other competing demands on their resources and their time? So recognizing that we don't exist in a vacuum and that we need to take into account a much broader social context if we're going to actually have success when that exogenous shock does come in getting our particular policy change through because it's the right thing to do.
0: That's so important and and really valuable. And I wonder if, if it's not a good time to bring in an audience question, and any of you can jump in here. Um, and someone asked, in the political sphere, it feels like misinformation is intentional. A narrative is generated. And this seems, um, surprisingly, to be very effective. Um, you can hear it in the political sound bites that are reproduced even among friends and colleagues and the question is how are they so effective and how can we undermine that effort
2: what i was referring to earlier was about the values-based messaging uh, like which uh, asrc commissioned a, a research a couple of years ago uh to 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 do like in how to counter this negative narrative like which is really it was really working until like that point and like those even uh refugee movement and refugee activists were being trapped by that narrative like so we was, wasted all our energies in kind in kind of like countering those narratives like for instance they were saying refugees are illegal and we were like no we are not illegal illegal so like in terms of that that was not working well and that uh, research uh, uh, i hope like the link will be shared so uh f- for words that work it was called words that work and like to how we can counter that but without countering it so that was the values-based messaging like personal stories like connection between like, like how others can can feel can like feel connected can put themselves in someone else's shoes like in that position how they would feel for instance uh, like if I say not this then probably that negative connotation or uh, impression will remain in that mind but if I say something more positive about myself like then it, it, it will make a different uh, impact on the minds rather than like like we we saw clearly and like we still like a, 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 at the election campaign or after that like the, peter dutton's wife said like peter dutton is not monster but we we think that he like the monster word was like remained in our mind so we think he's a monster okay like we forgot the not one but we kind of everybody thought, oh, he's a monster. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that—that that is like uh, how it worked for refugees as well. So like not to uh, use that all energy into uh, countering that, but to go on the positive side and like, kind of, like, so that way I think it might up into changing their narrative. And the, another research was done after that. And uh, the, the results showed that it made a great uh, change and impact, like the, how the, even like the, the support based those who were undecided people about refugees, like they have changed positions and like they, they were more supportive of the the cause. And like, they were not being trapped by the politicians and media, uh, like those who were countering, you know, like, uh, some of the media, not all, but yeah.
0: Yeah, that's the thing. And again, it goes back to Tom's point about uh, taking a long-term view. One refugee story or two refugee stories is not going to make a difference. You know, the hero, the tragic poor situation, but they all add up to create a complicated picture, which maybe gives us that entry that Amanda talks about for for changing people's mind. and. Amanda, I really wanna go to you directly on this idea of of moments of change because um, I know as in Australia, in the US, refugees really seem to be pawns in a larger partisan, sometimes racist, sometimes nativist politics in the US. I mean, I, I used to live on Martha's Vineyard so I watched recent events with interest. And I'm wondering, is that how you see this? discussion in the US? And if so, where do you see opportunities to get beyond that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think Tom is right that you have to prepare in advance for the kinds of shocks that disrupt high conflict systems. And there's different ways to prepare. A lot of it is relationship building. So you have to find credible messengers who are trusted by the audience you're trying to reach and have relationships with them so that they see you know, refugees as humans before everything gets disrupted or everything goes to hell or whatever the shock might be. Um, So a lot of that is is not just being reactive, but actually planning for those disruptions. Um, And I also say, look, I mean, we know we know some things about humans. Right. One thing is, unfortunately, we tend to be very groupish. Right. We will form groups and then um, be protective of our group and sometimes put our group above another group and all of these things we know right we like to scapegoat, especially when we feel threatened, and we also know that we don't like to be manipulated, so one of the things that the research has shown is that when you expose for people how they are being manipulated by people in power or people making money, it is not a good feeling, and if you offer them a way to show defiance right by rebelling against those manipulations, it tends to be much more effective than we might expect. So a quick example, going back to the obesity issue, actually, there was a really nice study that was done a few years ago um, that looked at how to get teenagers to start eating more healthy food. And, you know, a million things have been tried, like Tom was saying in the UK, a million things, and none of them work. And in this case, what they did was took a cue from the uh, effective advertising against smoking tobacco years ago to try to um, tell teenagers a story. In this case, they had a pretty large uh, group of teenagers and a control group, and the treatment group were given a short article to read about how big companies are manipulating young kids to get them to eat food that has a lot of sugar and salt sort of laced into it that makes you want more and more. And then these ads are targeting kids, right? And by doing this, they raised up a sort of natural sense of defiance that all teenagers and adults have, right? Which is they don't wanna be played. Nobody likes to be played, right? And they they could track what the kids ate for the next year because they could see what they were buying at the cafeteria using their uh, school cards, you know? And so it was a very cleverly designed study. And they found that um, this intervention worked, that it lasted over the year, and it worked especially well with boys, which was interesting. Um, So the lesson here is, one way to help people see that they're being manipulated is to keep showing them in story form that they're being manipulated. Um, We are being turned against one another when it suits powerful interests and politicians. And this is a very old story, right? Like this is not a new thing. So are there ways to tell that story that are refreshing, that don't make us defensive for our side, right? or, or our pre-existing um, identities that, that call on us to be independent thinkers and to not be chumps, so to speak?
0: I might turn uh, to another question from the audience, uh, this one from uh, For Bator. Storytelling can support the changing of hearts and minds but it can also be re-traumatizing for people. It can also set the expectation that it's okay for strangers to ask any refugee about everything, even the most difficult parts of their journey. And I see this often and and really um, apologize uh, for for the times that's happened to people who are present on this call. the question continues. Uh, things, you get asked things that uh, people would not normally ask strangers uh, or people who aren't refugees, and, and says that they've experienced this. I find it outstanding that people who I don't know can ask such personal questions, and I get offended when I don't, and they get offended when I don't want to answer. But Tor, do you have any suggestions on how we can change this?
2: Uh, yeah, I think that's a very important question so like this is true asking refugees about their personal stories of how they have suffered why they suffered all the time can be very traumatizing and can be very tiring Uh, or like or we have to change that perception as well like refugees are supposed to tell their stories like their miseries like like they should also portray all the time like to be In need of support or fear, like uh, uh, I I don't know what 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 is the word, or maybe uh, kind of in in the mode of uh, like that refugee, more or kind of like they are still suffering, or they have to, or they are supposed to tell that story time and again. I think that should change a bit. Like it is not for the entertainment sake, but for uh, they are not supposed to do that. Like uh, of course, it is important to change narratives to 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 raise some awareness in order to sharing some of those personal stories but we should respect that many might not feel comfortable doing this so uh, and it is not okay uh, to ask people like like or maybe to to do, to do that because it can be extremely triggering for a lot of people and we have uh, seen a lot within the communities that Who have been impacted. And uh, I think uh, just like everyone else, we should uh, treat uh, them with dignity. And uh, they they bring much more than their refugee experiences to to this country or any other country. Like they are like great achievers. Uh, They probably you might see a lot of good sports people, good artists. Like they, they might have a beautiful voice to sing for you. Uh, they might do a good, quick sketch of your picture. So, like, complement that, uh, like, what they're bringing. Maybe they can uh, do a, a design, a good design for your home or architect, or maybe they can set your interior design very beautifully and with the, with the eastern touch uh, or, yeah, so... Probably, yeah, compliment that. Like uh, uh, like anyone else, they are similar. So I think uh, just we should go uh, a few steps beyond their refugee experiences. Like, yeah, so they, they have much more to share.
0: It's so important to um, remember that none of us is a character. Or, and even when we're dealing with communications and messaging and narratives, we're in the end. Uh, A collection of human beings and uh, we have a great collection of human beings from all different um, walks of life in the audience so I'm gonna ask you all for a really brief thing that I know everyone always wants to know out of these panels which is what can each of us do right after this panel to start changing the refugee narrative and we'll end with that and I'm sorry for the questions that we haven't answered we'll do a quick wrap after that who wants to start?
1: Well, I really would like to pick up on what Batur said that I, I think is something that I've had to learn. I wish I had known it sooner, but it is very important, I think, to ask refugees for, for help, for their help. Like, can you help us with this? Like, what do you need? What can you do? What can you help us get better at, right? And whether you're asking as a journalist or as a neighbor, I think, there's so much talent and experience and wisdom and my god just you know strength in the refugees that i've been able to know and constantly asking them or acting like they need all the help is infantilizing at some level and also misses you just miss out on a lot of opportunity um so are there ways at scale to do that you know um i think you know one way to do that is journalism right is telling the stories of how are refugees helping our neighborhood or our school you know i remember covering a story in a school in texas i think it was where the refugee students were like just raising up the whole average for the test scores for this school and it was like just so exciting for the teachers <laughs> you know um and so stories like that which show the real agency that refugees have and bring and the assets that they are. Um, I know that sounds obvious, but they feel like there's a lot more that could be done there. Tom, you
0: want to jump in next?
2: I'm not sure that I feel
3: sufficiently qualified to give a view on that. I, I, I have a gut feel, which is like, how, how, do you, how can you reframe the debate an appeal to non-traditional audiences to build like what 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 could you do to identify ways of bringing non-traditional audiences alongside and i guess the way that i would if i was going to start doing this tomorrow i'd essentially commission a bunch of research (laughs) of like exploring the the relationship that the political opponents have to um a more progressive refugee policy or whatever it, it is and like delving into what the values problem is there, like what is it that instinctively feels wrong to them about about that policy, and then trying to find a way around that, I think that's probably where I'd start
0: and Vitor, what do you think's missing what or or what could you uh, do more of
2: probably, I think I have a bucket of uh, suggestions <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh probably i uh, like let's start with the I, I would love to like, and uh, my film is currently touring uh, Australia uh, screenings. So uh, I'm like hoping like I can do more screenings so like it can reach to as uh, as much uh, people as possible. And if anyone in the audience wants to collaborate or partner, definitely this is a way you can support as well to uh, to send the messages around. And also beside that, there is uh, uh, like. Support refugees around you, you know, center their voices, support them like they are, they should lead and they should be heard. Like they have to like, they need support. Follow them on like, uh, follow them on social media, Uh, amplify their voices, what they are saying, what they want. We have 31,000 people who are living in limbo they are crying on social media, they need support. And gov- like, the, we haven't still had any uh, uh, action for, from this government after a decade of punishment to them. And like, we have thousands of refugees uh, stuck in limbo in Indonesia. So like, like we can amplify those voices. And also uh, the other thing, I, I think ASRC uh, offers trainings of like that values-based messaging that I said, so like if anyone is interested, reach out to AHRC, like conduct those workshops and like, uh, tell more people, more and more people to learn about this, how we can battle this negative narrative and make a positive change. I think that is the, a few steps that you can help. <laughs>